0: Well, our study of the minor prophets has brought us to Zephaniah. Last week we looked at Habakkuk, and now in our Bibles we move forward to Zephaniah, but really to move forward to Zephaniah is chronologically to take a step back because Habakkuk uh, prophesied during the time after good King Josiah's reforms and, uh, had begun to unravel and all the good that had been done had fallen apart. And he was bemoaning the fact that things were back to where they were. Zephaniah prophesied before Josiah had grown up and started doing those good things. He was the king, but it was in the early part of his kingdom where he was uh, not old enough really to be doing the things that he did later in life. So we're going to find that Zephaniah has some definite things to say about what's going on in the world around him. Uh, Zephaniah is an interesting guy because unlike uh, Hosea uh, and Micah who were from small towns and uh, kind of went to the big city to prophesy, Zephaniah is from Jerusalem and was really from royal descent. If he were in, our, in England today, he would have probably been an earl or a duke. Uh, you know, he was someone in the royal family. Uh, also interesting that his father's name is Cushy. Uh, that's a fun name, isn't it? You might want to suggest that to someone who's expecting a child, Cushy. Uh, But what's what's interesting about that is that that the word Cush uh, is an African term. It describes an area in Africa that we now call Ethiopia. And so there's some speculation that Zephaniah uh, had some African lineage in his family as well. So he may be our only prophet, to speak to us from Africa as well. So let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God. This is just a sample. It was hard for me to decide which text to read, but I wanted us to hear a sample of what Zephaniah has to say. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate. That's an area there in Jerusalem. Wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Well, you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out, all who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, ah, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses, but not live in them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. Through Zephaniah, this is the word of the Lord. The other day, as we were ending our uh, ladies' Bible class, Wednesday morning ladies' Bible class, I made the mistake of saying, do any of you have any questions? I learned my lesson. The question I got was this. Why don't we have any more hellfire and brimstone sermons? Well, I didn't really have an answer to that uh, because instead of thinking of an answer, I was, had a flashback back to my youth and how many hellfire and brimstone sermons that I had sat through. And one in particular made a deep impression on me. Uh, it was back when I was a young teenager. And we all got in the car, many people from our church sort of caravaned to Odessa. Because this was during a time where having these big group meetings was really popular. And the Churches of Christ had rented the Odessa Coliseum and brought in a man named Jimmy Allen. Jimmy Allen was an evangelist and a teacher at Harding University. And he was brought in to preach his sermon series. What is hell like? So we went there and sat with thousands. The room was packed and heard him deliver his sermon. And uh, I was so impressed I bought the book on the way out. And I think that was the first book of my religious library in addition to the Bible was a sermon book on what is hell like. And I still have it. Uh, as gone through the years, I've culled my library and gotten rid of a lot of books that I know I won't read anymore, but that one just kind of has an emotional attachment, and so I've, I've held on to it. So after ladies' class, I went back, and since I was thinking of that sermon, I pulled the book out and read it again. And you know, he made some pretty good points. Now, I'm not going to preach his sermon today for several reasons. One is I don't like to preach other guys' sermons. You know, I need to put together my own. But I do want to share with you some of the points that he made about hell as he described what it was like. And each one of these points, he had many scriptures then that he would quote or read along with it. He began with the point that hell is eternal. And he said, you know, If God would say, you only have to go to hell for a thousand years, he said, I might could handle that. Because after that first day in hell, I could think, okay, 999 years, 364 more days, and I'm out of here. But that's not the way it is. That once you're there, you're there forever, and there's no getting out. He went on to say that hell is a place of absolute and total darkness. Because God is absent from there, and God is light. And therefore, if God is not there, there is only darkness. He went on to say that hell is like a place of fire that burns forever and torments those who are assigned there. It's a place of pain. It's a place where there's no rest, where there's no relief. And maybe worst of all, there is no hope. Now, I remembered some of those things from having heard him deliver it and then having read it afterwards, but something I had forgotten was the way he closed out his sermon was addressing the Christians in the audience and saying, you know, through the grace of God, you have escaped the fires of hell, but you must live your life in a consistent way so that those around you that you love and care about won't go to hell. Because if you don't give your witness to them, and if your life does not measure up to what you're saying, they will not be drawn to the grace and the glory of God. And how would you like to know that for eternity, someone you knew and someone that you loved is spending it in torment because of you? And the last paragraph read like this. Judgment day is coming. It might be tomorrow. It could be today, but now is the only time you have to make your decision where you will spend eternity. Told you it's pretty effective, (laughs) and it's true. And if you like hellfire and brimstone sermons, boy, are you going to love Zephaniah. He is your guy. Because that was the major topic of his prophecy to his people. Now, if you read Zephaniah, you're not going to find the word hell in there. And there's several reasons for that. One is that in the Hebrew Bible and in Zephaniah's time, when they talked about where you went after you died, they used the word sheol. And in most of our newer translations, that's the word that will pop up. They just have brought that into English. Because Sheol basically means unknown and unseen. That whenever we pass from this life beyond, we can't see what that is. We don't really know what that is. It's, it's Sheol. It's hidden from our eyes. Really, the concept of hell is more of a New Testament idea. And in your New Testament, you will find that word, and it translates the word Gehenna, which refers to the Valley of Hinnom, just right outside the city of Jerusalem. And it brings up all kinds of imagery, because even though we don't know exactly what hell will be like, it's a place you don't want to be, and you did not want to be in the Valley of Hinnom, because that's where all the garbage was thrown. That's where all the sewage was pumped out. That's where there were fires burning to destroy the filth. That's where the worms lived. That's where the maggots were. That's where the flies were. And you cannot imagine living for eternity in an area like that. And so that word was taken and brought then into the New Testament and said, this is what hell is like. It's a place of misery. It's a place of eternal punishment. Now, Zephaniah didn't really use that terminology. He used more military ideas, which lets us know that whenever we talk about what is the kind of punishment that those who are not obedient to God and those who reject Him are going to experience, it's really indescribable. You can describe it with fire. You can describe it as darkness. Zephaniah describes it as an army that comes swooping in and just wipes everything out. Let me give you an example. If you're in class you probably read a portion of this, but just an example. The great day of the Lord is near. It is hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. It's like a warrior crying aloud, that day will be a day of wrath. That day will be a day of distress. It will be a day of anguish, a day of ruin, a day of devastation, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds, a day of thick darkness. And on that day, I will bring such distress upon people that they will walk around like they're blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Okay, (laughs) we get the point, don't we? Zephaniah we understand well what is going on around Zephaniah that he feels like that this message must be preached why is it that he says folks y'all gotta wake up you can't keep living like you're living because where this is headed is to the wrath of God and to the day of judgment well if we read through the whole book we find out what's going on what the people are doing for one thing they are worshiping idols he even named some of them. He says, how can you worship a God named Milcom? But you do. Who is that? Who is Milcom and why do you give your obedience and your honor to him? And then he says something about it. Why do you go around leaping over thresholds? <laughs> Don't you love that one? What does that mean? You're leaping over thresholds. Well, it was a superstitious thing. That that if you worshipped idols, that the idols considered the threshold their territory, and it was a holy place, and you weren't supposed to step on a threshold as you entered into a room. So Zephaniah says, every time I see you come into a room and see you jump over that threshold, I go, no! (laughs) You're not worshipping God. It's kind of like, remember in the old days, uh, I don't know if you kids still do this or not, but we had a saying, step on a crack. That's superstition. Step on those cracks. It's okay. It doesn't matter. It won't break your mother's back. I promise you. Well, Zephaniah is saying you can step on the threshold. It has nothing to do with God. And then he goes on to say, not only are you worshiping idols, you're kind of just picking and choosing religious ideas. It's called syncretism, where you don't really stay loyal to one particular view of faith. You just say, well, I'm just going to sort of be a spiritual person and I'm going to pick and choose different ideas from all these other things and kind of blend it together and that'll be my faith. I've talked to people before that have made the statement to me, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a spiritual person. I'm just not religious. Well, that's syncretism. That is just bringing and picking and choosing what you like from a lot of other different things. And Zephaniah would say, that is not worshiping God. That is not worshiping the Lord. You need to listen to him and what he says is holy and what he says is good. Then he goes on to rail about the immorality of the people. Now, immorality was actually a part of worshiping idols. One reason that the people so easily slipped into worshiping idols was it's a lot more fun you know, some of the things they did were very sensual. They were very, uh, they, they appealed to the flesh, you know, and a lot better than going and sitting in church and singing songs and bowing your head. And so the immorality kind of went hand in hand with uh, idolatry. But also, it's just that if your view of the world is that this God is in charge and, and he doesn't, re- you know, you just kind of do what you want to do. And we find ourselves caught into immorality. He also mentions neglect of the poor. All the prophets mention that as a sign of a sinful generation and a sinful people. is that they don't really care about the poor. And then he says something that I read in the reading over there that really kind of pulls me up short. Because this is something that we've already talked about because the other prophets mentioned it. But he says it so completely. He says... I'm looking for someone who loves me, but all I'm finding is those who say in their hearts, oh, the Lord will do nothing. He will do neither good nor evil. And there's that attitude again, that we are living this life on our own and that God is not involved Every time I read that passage, I think of a young man that I met when I was preaching in East Texas. And I know years ago, I think I shared this story with you again, but I mean before, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, I remember I'd, I'd get up and I'd start preaching and our worship center there had a balcony that kind of, you know, was a little closer than that one. It's really easy to see people's faces in the balcony. And sometimes when I got up and was doing the reading, I would notice that that this young man would kind of slip in late and sit on the front row of the balcony. And when I would get up and start preaching, he would lean forward and listen. That scared me to death. If you want to scare me, lean forward and listen to what I'm saying. Because then I think, I better say something good. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it, I'm not threatened by those who kind of got their heads back and their eyes closed, because I'm not, I'm not going to mess their lives up. But if someone is listening, I want to make sure I'm speaking the Word of God and that this is real, all right? So he would sit and he would just listen to me, every word I said. And so I thought, i got to meet this guy. I wonder what's going on in his life. Why is he doing this? And for the first few weeks that I would see him up there, I'd try to catch him, but he'd get out before I could get back there to find him. But finally one day, I don't know if there was a, you know, the stairwell got clogged by people or something, but he was late getting out and I caught him. And I stuck my hand out and said, hey, I'm Tommy King. I've noticed you've been here for a while. I wanted to meet you. And he told me his name, and he was from a smaller town outside going to school now there in Tyler. And we talked, just chit-chat for a minute. And then right in the middle of all of that, he made this statement. He said, you know, it's really hard being a Christian these days since God doesn't do anything. And I thought, wow, it really caught me up short. I didn't really know what to say. Uh, One of the curses I have is I always think of something good to say about 10 minutes later, uh, and uh, I just said, well, uh, well, what do you mean God doesn't do anything? He said, well, when you read the Bible, God's there. He's doing things. And it was just, it was easy for them to believe in God because he was always doing things. Said, but he's not doing anything anymore. Well, if I had a second chance at that guy, I can't even remember how I answered him. But if I had a second chance at him, I would take him to this passage and say, look here. Even back then, they struggled with that. Even back then, they had short term memory just like we do now. Even back then, they were spiritually blind and often did not see the blessings that God put in their lives. I would take him back to the story of the Exodus. Whenever God took the people, led them through the Red Sea, covered up the Egyptian army, delivered them, and just a few days later, what are they saying? God's not doing anything, you know. He's not helping us. We're hungry. He needs to feed us. Why did he bring us out into this desert to die? It is so easy for us not to see what God is doing in our lives. It's so easy for us to be blind to the power of God and to the love of God that he shows. And Zephaniah says, because of this, Your idolatry, your syncretism, your immorality, and your spiritual blindness. The wrath of God is coming. Well, okay. Take a deep breath. That's Old Testament. After all, we live in the New Testament. Under the new way that God deals with us. Old Testament is about wrath. New Testament is about grace and love. So we don't have to worry about those things. Well, as we close, let's turn to Romans. And if really, if you have a Bible with you, and we'll open it up to Romans chapter 1 or grab that one there in front of you in the rack. The interesting thing about Romans is is that Paul wrote this letter as a sermon, especially the first part. He wanted the Romans to understand how he preached the gospel. So what he did here at the beginning of his letter was simply preach the gospel. So if you want to know what it would have been like to go to a Colosseum with thousands of other people and hear the Apostle Paul get up and preach the gospel, read the first eight chapters of Romans and you got it. All right? So after he says hello and all those things, verse 16, he says, now I'm going to preach to you the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, To everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, then he quotes Habakkuk, the one who is righteous will live by faith. All right. So basically he said, here we go. Here's the sermon and it's about the gospel. But watch out because we're real good about stopping our reading at verse 17 and saying, isn't that a wonderful passage? the the power of the gospel to save me and righteous shall live by faith. Well, let's let him get started. Have you read verse 18? Ready? For the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Isn't that interesting? The beginning of the preaching of the gospel is the wrath of God. And then as he goes ahead and explains why that is, why is God angry? Why is the wrath of God a necessary thing for us to understand if we want to have a real view of our universe, our world, and of ourselves? Well, he goes on to say that God's wrath is coming upon those who have not honored him as God. So they they see me, they know I'm around, but they don't honor me as God and they do not live their lives, thankfully. Then he goes on to list other things. He says they misuse their sexuality. They treat it like a toy, something that's just for entertainment rather than the purposes that I gave it for in this world. Then he goes on to say they envy each other. They have strife. They have deceit. They're proud. They rebel against their parents. And he says, because of all of this, because there is evil in this world, because they are not living the way that I intended them to live, then the wrath of God is coming. Whoa, Paul, I thought you preached grace and mercy and love. He says, I do. But you're not going to get the grace and the mercy and the love. It's not going to wash over you like a refreshing river. It is not going to be something that you seize upon and hug close to your heart and treasure unless you realize what it has saved you from. And what it has saved you from is the wrath of God. One more example, John chapter 3. Don't you love John chapter 3? Anybody here, can you quote John chapter three sixteen? Yeah, you can. For God so loved the world. Yeah, we love that passage. But we often quit reading there. We need to read 17 on down and some more things come up. And let, skip on down to verse 36 of chapter 3 of John, where the idea of 316 is repeated. It says, for whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. But whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, and here it comes again, but must endure the wrath of God I repeat the good news is good news only because it saves us from the wrath of God the gospel is grace and mercy only because it believes it brings forgiveness into the hearts of those of us who realize that our disobedience has put us in the path of the wrath of God Now, Zephaniah, let's give him credit. He knew that too. He knew that he was preaching the wrath of God in order for people to appreciate and to experience the mercy and grace of God. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture is found in Zephaniah chapter 3 right at the end as he describes what God was like for those who love him, for those who hold to him, and those who have abandoned their lives of disobedience. He says, do not fear. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The gospel is this, that that God does love us, that God wants to rejoice with us. He wants to claim us as his children. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. And most of all, he wants us not to endure his wrath. Zephaniah warned his people. The Apostle John warned his people. The Apostle Paul warned his people. And through these great men, let us be warned too. Let the gospel have its full effect, because truly judgment day is coming. It may be tomorrow, it may be today, but now is the chance. As Paul said, now is the day of salvation. Let's stand and sing.